have you guys back on the back row. Will y'all just kind of settle down and be real still and stay for the whole program? We'll get into this thing tonight, okay? I want you to turn to 2 Kings. It's right over in the first part of the Bible, 2 Kings. And I want to continue the series of sermons that I began several weeks ago on the servant role of the believer. Becoming a servant, living the servant life, having the servant philosophy, being a servant. And no more are we like Jesus than when we are serving others and Him. And He's come to teach us and to show us and to call us to the servant role. And if somehow the church, this church or any church, could capture the servant philosophy and the servant ministry, we'd literally turn our communities upside down for God. Second Kings chapter 2, and then if you want to just find this passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and hold the place there. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and 2 Kings, one is in the New Testament and one is in the Old. 2 Kings is in the Old, 2 Corinthians is in the New. No one, no one will ever forget Jonestown. We would like to, but we can't erase that stigma from our memory. The horrible event, some of you saw pictures of it. Folks dead, stacked up like cards of wood in rows. It is hard to imagine how that one man could have the power to choreograph such an extermination as that man. A man of great charisma and power and ability and persuasiveness who was called of God to be a servant and chose rather to be a God. There is no, par there is no vocation on earth that does not have its peril. And so I guess that under that picture that we all now have in our minds as we remember Jonestown, we could write this caption, The Peril of Unlimited Power. There is no vocation on earth that does not have its peril. From the steeplejack to the, um, the SWAT team member to the window washer and the high-rise buildings in New York City, every vocation has a peril, even preaching. Especially preaching, as a matter of fact. And even servanthood. I've come to this time in the in this series of messages to talk to you about the perils of servanthood, to warn you that if you come to the place in your life, in Christian walk, in the Christian life, where you can literally sell out to God and really live your life out as a servant at the feet of another with a towel in a basin, and you decide that this is God's calling for you as a Christian, 
that you're here not to have life organized around you and your privileges, but you're here to minister and to serve. I want to warn you that there are perils involved in this servanthood. Now you might be asking, well, why would that ever be? Why, what possible perils could ever be involved in just serving other people and giving our life to ministry and to caring for other needs? What possible perils could ever be involved in servanthood? That's what I'm about tonight. And before we get there, I want to lay a kind of a foundation or basis of what I want to say, and I want to want you to look in your outline because I want us first of all to notice some misconceptions about servanthood because there are some misconceptions that lead us to the question or to the um, surprise that there could be perils in servanthood. There are several misconceptions and we'll find these over in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 15 asks this question. Or verse 16, catching verse 15. But the last part of verse 16 asks, And who is adequate for these things? And the answer to that question is found in the third chapter, verse 5. And the Apostle Paul says, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with um, ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves. Who is adequate for these things? The Apostle Paul answers, we are not adequate for these things. The first misconception of servanthood is this, that the servant has certain powers within himself. If we're not careful, we will pedestal some people and we kind of label them as super-Christians and they become the exception to us rather than the example. And I've said it, and so have you, and I've heard it. Well, I could never have her faith. I just wish I could have her faith. Or I could never have his Christianity or his Christian walk or his knowledge of God. And we pedestal these people. Well, where do you think she got her faith? And where do you think he got his commitment to God? Anything that a believer or a Christian has, if he has any power, it is, it is a power that has come from a source outside of himself, for we are totally and wholly human. I want to give you a, two um, principles. I want you to write these down. Principles that have to do with the body of believers, the body of Christ. Principle number one. The people we consider in the body of Christ who are weak, the weak people in the body of Christ are essential. Principle number one, the weakest people in the body of Christ are essential. That's what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 12 when he said that, you know, the, the, the eye can't say to the foot, I have no need of you. Everybody is essential to the body. The weakest is essential. Principle number two, those people in the body of Christ we consider essential or have weaknesses. 
Those people we consider essential have weaknesses. And sometimes I think we forget that and we pedestal these people and we are bound to be disappointed by them because anything that we possess that's of value, any power that's ours as a servant has come from a source outside of ourselves. Second misconception, that servants don't struggle with everyday problems. Chapter 4, verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 7 says that we have this ministry, this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency might be of God and not from us. Then he says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. That word afflicted means the pressure that comes from circumstances and the perplexity that comes from people. Now here is God's man, probably the greatest Christian who ever lived, and this is his everyday life. This is the panorama of his everyday existence. He had pressures from circumstances and perplexities from people. He said we're perplexed. That word means without a way, at a loss as to where to go. Frustration. Then he said we're persecuted. That means to be chased, to be put on the flight. It means to be run off. And then he said we're struck down. That means to be run over with an 18-wheeler. Now you talk about a, um, a um, soap opera. This is the panorama of a Christian. We, are, we live under pressures of circumstances and perplexities of people. We are frustrated every day we live. We are put on the run and chased and we are run over and trampled. It's a misconception to believe that when you become a child of God, it's easy street from then on. I was talking not long ago to a person who came into my office and just poured out to me the trouble that was in their life. And you know, I said, I just kind of listened for a while and I said to them, you know, I have the same kinds of problems. And they just went like that. And I said, did you think that preachers don't have problems or Christians don't have problems? And she said, I knew you had problems, but I didn't think you'd ever admit it. The misconception is that we don't have the problems of everyday experience. You do, and just because you give your life to Jesus Christ and sell out to Him doesn't mean you're not going to have the same everyday problems as everybody else. Third misconception. That is that servants are protected against subtle dangers. Verse 10 of chapter 4. Same epistle, chapter 4, verse 10. And he says, Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. The servant lives in the jaws of death and he has the marks of death on his life. Now with that kind of a background, I want you to turn to 2 Kings, to this marvelous, marvelous story. And I just want to develop it. If you don't have your Bibles, you need to get close to somebody who does because we're going to just take verse by verse and follow to see some perils of servanthood. Second chapter, let me set the story. Times are bad in Israel. I mean the nation was in trouble. The nation of Israel had just begun to disintegrate. 
And of all the kings that sat upon the throne of the northern kingdom in a space of 300 years, not a one walked with God. Not a one. And so there was conspiracy and deceit in the land, and it led to murder and idolatry. The nation of Israel was on a downhill spiral. And in the midst of that disintegration of the Israelis and their life, God sent a prophet by the name of Elijah. Elijah was a man who stood against the sin of his time, a great man who had a marvelous message. And we know the story of how he confronted the godlessness of his time on Carmel and set Baal and Baal's prophets on the run. And some strange thing happened to Elijah. He ran out into the wilderness and sat down out there and wished that he could die. He got into a terrible state of depression. And God came to him in that time. And by the way, there's a tremendous lesson on how to deal with depression and how God dealt with Elijah out there in the backside of the, of the desert. And God, first of all, fed him and met his physical needs because depression a lot of times is just related to physical exhaustion. And then he gave him a new purpose in life. He said, life's not over for you. I've got a new thing for you to do. And he gave him this new message, new command. And then he did a third thing that I think is essential for those who are really dealing with depression. He gave him a friend. He sent another man by the name of Elisha to walk with him. And that's where we pick up the story in the second chapter. Now Elijah came on into the earth, on the earth, in a whirlwind. That's how he left. And he's getting ready to, to, to go back, to, to go to the Father and leave Elisha uh, alone in the world. And look at verse um, 9. Now it came about when they had crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. And he said, You've asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I'm taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. Then it came about as they were going along and talking, there came this chariot of fire, and Elijah went to heaven in that chariot of fire. And Elisha stood there and said, My father, my father, the horses of Israel and the chariots thereof. That means that the security, Elisha understood that the security of the nation of Israel rested in that man of God. There's a lesson in that that the security of any nation rests not in its horses and chariots, but in the godly people who make up that nation. And that's what Jesus meant when he said, you're the salt of the earth. Now will you turn over to the fourth chapter. Elisha now is here on this place, and he's kind of got it on his own. We're looking at verse 8. Now there came a day when Elisha passed over to Shunem, where there was a prominent woman, and she persuaded him to eat food. So it was as often as he passed by, he turned then there to eat food. This prominent woman, and she was deeply um, uh, committed to this man of God and grateful to him, and so she'd feed him, you know, uh, um, fried chicken, and every Baptist pre preacher will pass by and pass in to where they're having fried chicken. And she said, Elijah, 
I just want you to come and I want to feed you. I want to take care of you. And she persuaded her husband to build a little room for Elisha to come and rest, you know. He was kind of an itinerant preacher and she prepared this for him. Now look at verse 12. Then he said to Jehazi, now there's the first, there is the first indication of the servant. Now underline that and fasten your seatbelts. Here we go. Here's this servant of Elisha. Call this Shunammite, and when he had called her, she stood before him. Now I want to read this. This is what happened. He said, you've been so good to us, so good to me. Let me do something good for you. What do you need? And the woman indicated that she had never been able to have a child, a son. So Elisha said, I'll tell you what, a year from now you're going to have a child. You're going to have a son. And the woman couldn't believe it. Her husband was old. She had been barren all these years. And she said, don't give me this story. Don't tell me that if it's not really true. And he said, by the, by the word of God, a year from now, you're going to have a son. And she did. A child was born. Now pick up at verse 18. When the child was grown, the day came that he went out to his father, to the reapers. And he said to his father, my head, my head. Evidently, you know, he had some kind of a brain hemorrhage or it was struck in the head, but he had this terrible blow on the head and he said to his servant, carry him to his mother. And when he'd taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her lap until noon and then died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God. It's interesting to note that this, ne this woman never called him by his name after that again. She called him the man of God, never Elisha. And shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called her husband and said, Please send me one of the servants, one of the donkeys, that I may run to the man of God and return. And so she went and came to the man of God, to Mount Carmel, verse 25. And it came about when the man of God saw her at a distance that he said to Jehazi's servant, Behold, yonder is the Shunammite. Please run now to meet her and say to her, Is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with the child? And she answered, It is well. Now notice that. This servant went out and met the woman. He said, Is it well with you and your husband and the child? And for some strange reason, she said, It is well. The child was dead. But when she came to the man of God, to the hill, she caught hold of his feet. She grabbed him around the feet, held on. And Jehazi, look at this, came near to push her away. But the man of God said, let her alone, for her soul is troubled within her, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Peril number one is the peril of protection and, and possessiveness. Now here was this servant grabbing, uh, uh, taking this woman who was holding on to Elisha's feet and pushed him away and said, leave this man alone. There is the peril of overprotection and, and possessiveness. You see, when you become a servant, you have a tendency to think of where you minister as your territory. This is my turf, and I'm going to protect it. 
That's true whether your ministry is in the home as a mother or whether it's in the church in ministry. There is a tremendous tendency to possess rather than to serve. This is my territory. I'm going to hold on to it. I'm going to keep it. Something is happening like that in the church in the 20th century. This is my church and I'm going to keep it just like I've always had it. I know a preacher who came to a little church in Gresham, Oregon and he just started winning people to the Lord and they came from every walk of life and from every race and from every color. He had four members in that little church when he went there. All four of those folks just took off and left. They didn't want these folk coming in and changing their church. Something is happening like that in the church. I've got a hold here and I want to keep it just like it is. I don't want to see my church change. Ron Dunn, who has such a tremendous message from the Lord, said, if you really want to see whether or not a person is really serving God, you go into a Sunday school room where a, where a person has taught the same class for 20 years, and you say to that person, we feel God is leading you to another place of service and another teacher coming in here. You see how they like it. If they accept that and rejoice in that and move on to a new location, you know that person is just there to serve. This is my Sunday school class, and I don't want it to change. This is my ministry, and I want to hold on to it. I want to keep it just like it's always been. The desire to possess and to control and, and to hold on to. Peril number one. Now let's jump down to verse 28. Then she said, Did I not ask for a son from my Lord? Did I not say, do not deceive me? Then he said to Jehazi, gird up your loins and take my staff in your hand and go your way. If you meet any man, do not salute him. And if anyone salutes you, do not answer him and lay my staff on the lad's face. I can just see this servant saying, now I finally found something where I can get some, I can be important, where I can get some notoriety. I'm going with a staff and I'm going to lay it on the dead and I'm going to see that person rise from the dead. I'm finally going to find my place in the sun. So he takes the staff and the mother of the lad said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I'll not leave you. And he rose and followed her. Then Jehazi passed on before them and laid the staff on the lad's face but there was neither sound nor response. So he returned to meet him and told him, the lad has not wake, awakened. He really expected, you know, some response, some result of his work, his ministry. Nothing happened. And Elisha came into the house. Behold, the lad was dead and laid on his bed. The story is that Elisha laid down on the boy, put his hands on his hands, face on his face, eyes on his eyes, breathed on him, and the lad began to live. Verse 35, And went up and stretched himself on him, and the lad sneezed seven times, and the lad opened his eyes. And he called Jehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. And he called her, and when she came into him, he said, Take up your son. Then she went in and fell at his feet and bowed herself to the ground, and she took up her son and went out. Peril number two. The peril of feeling used but unappreciated. I can just hear this servant saying, I did everything I was told to do. 
I've done what I was told to do, what I was expected to do, what I was commanded to do. Nothing happened. About all I'm good for in this world is just telling someone what someone else has done. And I can just imagine that as she bowed down at the feet of Elisha, how easy it must have been for this servant to say, when am I going to get some credit for what I've done? Sometime the servant of God only is allowed to do that which gives someone else credit. Somebody said, it's amazing what we could do in this world if we don't care who gets the credit for it. Sometimes we get no, absolutely no appreciation, no credit. Does that bother you? Chapter 5. There comes on the scene a man named Naaman. He's a high-ranking officer. He's, the Bible says that he's a rich man, but he was a leper. Have you ever noticed that the Bible never says that leprosy is cured, but cleansed, never cured, always refers to the cleansing of leprosy? Because leprosy in the Bible is a picture of sin. Sin is never cured. Sin is cleansed. We're cleansed of sin, but never cured of it. Now, if you'll look at verse 8 of chapter 5, we're going to see peril number 3. This, this uh, Syrian officer had sent for someone to come and heal him. And so, it, so Elijah sent his servant, Jehazi, verse 8. And it happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger to him. It was Jehazi, I'm sure of it, his servant, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was furious. Now the prophet of God sent the servant with this message. You tell Naaman this is what he's to do. And when he did, it just made this man furious. And Naaman said, I thought at least the prophet of God would come out to meet me and implies, but he sent this guy out here, this servant. Here I am, a Syrian captain, and he sends this uh, nobody, this servant out to see me. And he was furious at the message that he had for him. Peril number three, the peril of receiving undeserved disrespect. I want you to know that it was a tremendous shock to me when I found out that just because I had given my life to God and planned to serve Him for the rest of my life, that everybody didn't just, you know, really respect me. That was a tremendous shock. As a matter of fact, it was a staggering blow when I discovered that because I was a servant of God, some disdained me and abhorred me. Sometime being the child of God and the servant of God means no respect 
and no appreciation and no love. Especially when you deliver the message God has for you to deliver. Nobody likes to be told that they've sinned against God. And nobody likes to be reminded that the only way to be right with God is to commit themselves by faith to Jesus. That's the uh, foolishness of preaching that the apostle talked about. Undeserved respect. Verse 15, we'll get peril 4, then we'll quit. When he returned to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him, he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So please take a present from your servant now. Now Naaman was so grateful for what had happened. He said, I want to give you something. I want to pay you. I want to give you a love offering. And uh, Elisha said, No, I'm not going to take that offering. I did this in ministry of God. I'm not going to take it. And here stands Jehazi off to the back here, and he's thinking to himself, Take it, you know. I could use a new suit new pair of alligator shoes, you know, I could, I could use that. Take it, and Elisha wouldn't. Now I want you to follow with me. Verse 20, But Jehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, thought, Behold, my master has spared this Naaman, the Aramean, by not receiving from his hands what he has brought. As the Lord lives, I'll run after him and take something from him. And the story continues that Jehazi ran after it, caught Naaman and said, you know, my master has decided that he'll take what you've got. So he gave it to him. Peril number four. The peril of hidden grief. The secret smoldering desire to be rewarded and to be applauded. Now I want to do a little confessing. Sometimes that just eats us up who are pastors and preachers, staff members and servants. We want so much to be accepted, to be, to be applauded, to be rewarded. And, and you know, sometimes, you know, we just kind of live on that and thrive on it. Before I got victory in this thing, I mean, how people would respond to me or what they'd say when they'd come out on Sunday morning, just make my week or ruin it. The secret desire to be rewarded and applauded. Servant of God gives all of that up because that glory belongs to the, to the Master. Now, there are three applications. Number one, no servant is completely safe. No servant is completely safe. Never was there a time in the life of Jesus when he was completely safe from peril. These kinds of things. Number two. Most actions of the child of God will go unrewarded initially. Most of what you do as a child of God goes unrewarded initially. There'll be no rewards at the first. You'll have to wait some other time for that. You'll do it without reward. Number three, all motives, 
must be honestly searched. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I serving God? Why am I here? Why have I taken this place where I serve and minister? Am I doing it because I really want to serve? Am I doing it for what I can get out of it, whatever that is? Will you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, if we know the, our heart tonight, we honestly want to serve you and to serve others. And there's so many of us who can identify with these things. It seems like we serve and minister and nobody notices, nobody really cares. We've laid our staff across the faces of the dead, no response. We've had no success. We've labored and served Sunday school classes and we've seen no results. We've gotten discouraged. We've looked for some kind of reward, gotten none. We've looked for some kind of applause and received none. And then we remember, Father, the example of our Lord Jesus who said that the last shall be first and that the greatest will be the servant of all. Help us to find our place in ministry and service to realize that life was not organized, is not organized around us and our pleasures and our desires, but to quietly and unreservedly and without notoriety or tension, we're just to serve others, to honor you and please you. And now in these moments, help us to examine our heart as to where we are, what's really the motive of our life and ministry. And as we extend an invitation, Father, I pray that you will call to this fellowship those you'd want to place their life here, and those who have never trusted Jesus Christ to come, stand with believers, claiming Jesus as Savior and Lord. For I pray in his name and for his sake. Now look this way. We have three invitations tonight first invitation is for you to come who are lost, who have never received Christ as your personal Savior, to invite Jesus into your life, to confess your need of Him, to trust your life to Him. Luther says the only saving faith is that which casts itself upon God for life or death. To give your life to Jesus Christ, to invite Him in to be your Savior. Unless you've done that, you've never been born again. You've never experienced salvation. Second invitation is for those of us who need to rededicate ourselves to Christ, to the servant ministry of the church, 
without regard of what others think, just to give our life to caring for others, for God's people, God's world. The third invitation is for you to come tonight and place your life here in service and ministry. God is raising up a unique church here in Durant with a unique ministry and unique people. We want you to be a part. While Bill leads our song of invitation, we'll ask you to come while we stand together, would you?